This is Paul Ritchie, and today we're going to be talking with George Barr, who was one of the artists who defined the look for star control and did many of the most memorable color paintings. Uh, if you remember what the planet Unservalt looks like, or the grandfather talking to his kids at the end of the game, or what the spaceship looks like when it's warping into hyperspace, those are all images that George Barr created for star control. Hi, George. Hi. So, glad to be here. <laughs> oh, I'm really <laughs> glad to have you here. Um, this is a very casual interview and conversation. I have some questions that I'll ask along the way, but what we're doing now is we're looking at images um, that George has collected over the years, and we're thinking about some of using some of them uh, in our new game, Ghosts of the Precursors, and then we're also looking at some of them because they have a historical value to us because they are from Star Control. Um, so, so George, there's a couple of images here that are black and white studies for Star Control. Uh -huh. Can you tell us why you created those before making the color painting? Well, I want to uh, uh, establish the the composition. You know where things are going to be on the page, and get the approval on my my design of the the person who is is going to be paying for it. They shouldn't have to be paid for something they don't like. And it's surprising how often the there are major changes asked for or insisted upon by the editors. And I I did them as as large as I could so that I could uh, email them to the person uh, so that they could see it, you know, as as detailed as possible. Um, we did Star Control so long ago that it was actually even before email. And yeah. um, I remember I was out in a small town in Nebraska when we were working on this game together. And I used the fax machine and told them, you're going to be getting some faxes to me. And I think they thought I was going to get like legal papers. Mm -hmm. And so I, I remember you sent images of uh, the, pl the planet Unservalt and then the cave with all of the precursor machines uh -huh. inside, and they, being cattle ranching, mostly people out there, had no idea what I was getting. But um, so you used fax machines to transmit them as, as soon as I was able to. Uh, my roommate at the time was was very into electronics, and he he would uh, do all of the the faxing for me. I I never used the machine. I've got a computer over here now that I haven't touched in ten years because <laughs> I just don't do that anymore. And all of this work, work that you did for us. I, I, oh, I just wanted to make one point: is you keep saying Star Control. Oh, okay. And You're not supposed to. Well, <laughs> it's technically Star Control too. And saying Star Control is what gets okay. us into trouble. All right. So you can cool. edit in the two later. But <laughs> Star Control <laughs> two, two, two. Yeah, will do. Will do. Um, so, so one of the things that is, you know, we Fred and I have been making games up until this afternoon. And everything's digital. But when we were working together, everything was on physical media. Yeah. And, and you've used different, very specific physical media on our games. And I was kind of curious if there were styles or if there were looks to the work that came out of the physical nature of either the medium you were drawing on or what you were using to draw. Very probably true, because uh, uh, there's... The style of my work, the color work, is, somebody said, inimitable, which means you can't imitate it. <laughs> and uh, it, 
I've seen a couple of things that people have tried using the, the mediums that I used, and with a couple of efforts, they say, oh, I can't do that, I can't do that. <laughs> Never stopping to realize, okay, it took me 20 years to develop it. I, I was in high school, and my art teacher said, George, you are depending too much on your eraser. He says, uh, you, you put in so many lines, and then you, uh, you erase what you don't like. He says, start sketching with a pen, knowing that what you put on the paper is going to stay there. So uh, you'll be a lot more careful where you put it. And I did. And uh, this was in the very, very early ages of uh, ballpoint pens. This is back in the 1950s. And I started with ballpoint pens because it was so much trouble having to refill a fountain pen every few minutes. And uh, the ballpoint pens were pretty awful at that time. The, the ink just <laughs> it smeared and it didn't dry. But that was what I was using. And over a few years' time, I found that uh, if I was careful with a very light touch, I could do a myriad of very, very fine lines and get a nice gray tone. And uh, it was quite some time afterward that I decided to try watercolors over the top of this to see what it looked like. I used that for a lot of the preliminaries that I did for the early book covers that I, I turned out, and then asked Don Wolheim of Daw Books if it would be all right if I did a full, you know, a cover using that technique. He says, well, sure, try it. And I did, and he liked it. He published it, and it looked fine, and so that's what I've done ever <laughs> since. Do you it's recall? watercolor over ballpoint pen. Yeah, and I, I love that style. Um, there's the nature of the the page, the paper that you worked on seems to influence that a lot. Yeah. What, what sort of paper did you use? Uh, well, I learned to adapt to whatever kind of paper I could afford at the time. I liked illustration board, you know, a, a nice... A textured surface, not really lumpy, but, you know, just to texture so that a light touch of the ballpoint pen would, would give almost a series of dots rather than than a, a, a full line. But uh, I'd get Strathmore mm -hmm. uh, paper. Strathmore was a brand I used when I could get it. And uh, I liked the finer Auditor's Fine Point, Bic Auditor's Fine Point pen was the best that I ever found. That's, and did you ever have issues with the, the ballpoint ink being water-soluble when you were doing the, the paint over with watercolor? No, never had a problem with that. I did have a problem with one when I used the... Uh, after I finished the, the work, because watercolor is, you know, uh, easily damaged, I would spray it with Krylon, uh, you know, to give it a... A smoother look. I don't know how else to express it. And one time I couldn't find the Krylon and I bought another uh, another brand of spray and it kind of dissolved the ballpoint pen and it just spread. It, oh. was, it was horrible. I sent it to the customer anyway, told him I was experimenting with their style. <laughs> <laughs> and he bought it. Excellent. Well, sometimes... It wasn't us, was it? <laughs> it wasn't us. We weren't the customer. No, oh, no, no. The guy that uh, that had bought that died a number of years ago, so I'm not worried about it anymore. I'm looking at an image right now that you did in 1978 of what looks like a quaddle or a, a kind of a winged serpent almost, and it's got incredibly fine lines used to define the shape and and the, the value 
Is, is this rapidograph or is this? No, that is uh, is a croquil pen, a dip pen. Wow, these are lines so fine. It's hard to it's hard to imagine having a steady enough hand to do that. Well, I I got practically nose to the paper when I was working on things like that. I I didn't do it very often because it was, you know, a little hard on the eyes. This is beautiful. This is um for a story called Star School by Joe and Jack Halderman. Mm -hmm. Science fiction writers of of some <laughs> great note uh, for Asimov Science Fiction Magazine. That's yeah. beautiful. Uh, Thank you. So, so we're, we're I'm going to set this aside. And then, so, I guess that leads to a question of how did you get started doing this? It sounds like you were taking art classes from when you were young, but how did that lead into professional work? Well, I didn't really take that many art classes. I took art in in school when it was ever offered. You know, through high school. And uh, after I graduated from high school, for lack of anything else to do, I went to a commercial art school, the vocational school, and uh, had one year of that and realized that I was they were trying to shoehorn all of the people into what could be used in the local commercial art uh, area. And it would be like uh, painting signs for grocery stores and, uh, you know, Things that I had absolutely no interest in. I learned an awful lot about the about color and uh, the various mediums that I didn't know anything about. But uh, I was not at all interested in what they were trying to talk me into doing. So I only took one year of that. And then fandom and I discovered each other at about the same time. And uh, I found out about fanzines. And my only interest in doing things for fanzines at the time was to get published samples of my work that I could show to people to let them see what I could do. And it didn't go very far because uh, the kind of work that I was doing for the fanzines was not of, of any interest at all to the, the kind of people in Salt Lake City <laughs> that uh, <laughs> that I lived among. And it wasn't... Uh, well, I, I had a few professional assignments. Uh, like I sent things to con conventions, and uh, Seal Goldsmith, the editor at the time of Fantastic Stories magazine, liked one of the pieces that was there, and contacted me and said, "Would you would you do a version of that that we could use on the cover of our magazine?" So I did. I did a couple of covers for them, and it was. In kind of embarrassing in a way, because instead of being sent a story to illustrate, they sent the illustration to an author and said, write a story around this. Well, that sounds actually kind of like that was an inspiring image. Well, it could have been, except that one of them, oh, I wish that they had sent me the story, because I would love to have illustrated that story, and this painting that he based it on just looked crude. Mm. It, it wasn't wasn't at all like what he was describing. And it, uh, the general public reading the story wouldn't have any idea, you know, that the, the picture came first. They would figure that I didn't know what I was doing. But uh, I thought, okay, I've had these published. I'll, uh, now everybody's going to write to me, <laughs> you know. But it didn't, didn't work that way. I had about 10 years of uh, very, very little work. Um, most of my income was coming from what I could sell at the convention art shows. And uh, very, very little published work. And it wasn't until uh, 
1968 when I got a call from, uh, let's see, what was his name? William Ware Tice. He was the costume designer for Star Trek. He had been to the Worldcon that was held that year in, in Los Angeles, and uh, I had won the Hugo for the best fan artist, not professional, fan artist at the time. So he went into the art show to see what, what I did why I got a, a Hugo, and he called me and he says, there are so many opportunities waiting for you. Get out here where we can use you. And I said, well, I don't think about it. And he says, no, you come out now. He says, I'll pay your way. I'll get you out here. He says, you get out here quick, and and I'll, I'll introduce you around, and you'll find some work. And so a couple of weeks later, I was in Los Angeles. <laughs> and... Uh, Never went back. Did you do work on Star Trek? I, um, <laughs> it's kind of funny. I, I was not really interested in it when I got out there and saw how it was done and, and the personalities that you had to contend with. Uh, I saw temper tantrums that, uh, that stopped production, you know, where everybody was standing around collecting wages, uh, <laughs> while somebody got over their tantrum. And it just, it was, I, I just couldn't see it. And so I started looking around L.A. for other stuff. And then Bill Tice called me and he says, uh, I need, need your help on something. He says, this is sort of halfway between makeup and costume. There's a story coming up that deals with some futuristic flower children on a spaceship, you know, that are looking for the planet Eden. And uh, he explained it to me. He says, this is sort of hippie type. He says, but futuristic hippie. He says, uh, <laughs> body paint. Uh, give me some Im images of fruit and flowers and that sort of stuff. So I did some sketches. I was at the studio. He pulled me into the studio for doing this. And I all I did was just, you know, quick pencil sketches. And he says, well, let me check now with the, the makeup guy to see if this is something that will work. And he came back a few minutes later. He says, yeah, we're having uh, rubber stamps made of, of these images. I says, but Bill, those weren't finished. Those were just sketches. He says, well, they will do. He says, and uh, you will come in and paint the images, won't you? I said, well, I guess so. So for a week, I was on the Star Trek set every day, painting these images on the... Uh, uh, on the futuristic hippies. Uh, <laughs> I wish I could remember the names of the, the people I painted. One of them was uh, uh, Charles Napier, who I understand had done some softcore porno <laughs> before this, and uh, really a homely guy, but a terrific physique. And uh, he is now a, a major... Uh, um, character actor. I see him in a lot of stuff. Really? Yeah. He's he's now in, in his 80s, I guess. But uh, he's, he succeeded where the rest of them, whose names I don't remember at all, uh, were just there for that one episode. I remember that they had a slang term for a very unhip older person was a Herbert. And I don't know if you're... I may have watched a lot of Star Trek. Fred may have, too. So That has never been a successful insult. As many times as I've a tried Herbert. calling people a Herbert, they just don't get it. So, Well, you'd to. have to have seen the, <laughs> or heard the origin of it. That's, and then, so you, you were in 
down in Los Angeles. Uh, mm-hmm. And and where did that go? Well, uh, Los Angeles is a place that uh, sooner or later everybody goes. And uh, there were small conventions. And I was living in the house owned by John and B. Joe Trimble. I don't know if you know their names. They were big sure. names in, in fandom at the time. Uh, B. Joe was considered Miss... Mrs. Star Trek, she started a letter-writing compa- uh, campaign that, uh, that saved Star Trek from being canceled after the second year, so she was responsible for bringing it back for the third year. And uh, everybody in fandom knew her, and so any fans that visited Los Angeles visited the Trimble house, and I was part of it at that time. And uh, Alicia Austin, a Canadian artist came down and joined the household. We were kind of like a little commune hmm. and uh, met so many people, big names uh, in the publishing, and they were saw my work and were interested, and it, it just took off. I would, never got rich. I got to do everything in the world I ever wanted to do except get rich. <laughs> well, I, I think if the world were just, you would have been. Uh, <laughs> One of the images that I ran into yours first, linking back to softcore porn, uh, was <laughs> a great poster that I, I can't remember who gave it to me, some naughty adult, because uh, I think I was about 13, and I got the poster for Flesh Gordon. Oh, yes. And I knew it combined the things I was most interested in at 13, which was scantily clad people and science fiction. Yeah. How did you end up doing... Th- it was a great poster, by the way. Oh, thank I you. loved it. Well, I... I got to know a lot of people, you know, when I was working on, on the little bit that I did on Star Trek. I met uh, Mike Miner, whose name I don't know whether you know. He painted that big picture over there, the, the seats. Uh, That's it. Alien a... landscape. Wow. Beautiful piece. Mm-hmm. He's, he's passed away since. But uh, one of the first fans I met was Greg Jean, who a few years later went on to design the... Uh, the alien ship in uh, uh, Close Encounters. Oh, really? Of the Third Kind. Yeah, he, he's been very successful at doing... Well, he, first he was doing model work, but uh, when CGI came into it, he would he would do the the models, and then they would you know photograph them from all different angles to be able to feed it into their computer. Mm-hmm. So he was still able to work in it, but he had a, a really good career with that. He has recently retired. And, uh, oh, Dan- Jim Danforth. Sure. Met him. Uh, oh, I wish I could remember all of the names. My he was a Ray wish. Harryhausen student, is that yeah, correct? Yeah, very much. And I, I met all these people, and they were all pulled together for working on, on Flesh Gordon. Mike Miner designed all of the sets. Uh, Jim Danforth didn't want his name connected with it, but he did some of the animation in it. And Greg Jean did the modeled the, the spaceships for it. Right. And uh, because I had done this makeup on Star Trek, they contacted me to do the makeup. And I said, no, absolutely <laughs> not. All I did was body paint. That's not makeup. What little makeup I had done was done for amateur stage work in, in Utah. And it's not quite the same as movie work. I, I said, no, I, I absolutely could not do it. And I recommended B. Joe because she had done some makeup work. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, never anything of this particular type, but she did it. Got screen credit for it. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And uh, so they said, well, if you're not going to do the makeup, will you at least do the poster? So I did uh, a concept of the poster. And uh, they, they sort of liked the basic idea. They insisted on some changes that... I, so far as I was concerned, just ruined it. I had uh, had hero Flesh Gordon standing there holding a ray gun, and they wanted him holding an umbrella, because there is a scene in the movie where he bails out of a ship holding an umbrella. But if you haven't seen the movie, you wouldn't know that, so it would just look stupid. But uh, I put his arm up and had the umbrella sort of going down behind him so he didn't see much of it. <laughs> but uh, they also insisted that I work four or five times as large as I, I was really comfortable working. Was that the largest piece you worked on? Uh, oh, no, I've done stage sets before oh, <laughs> that wow. were pretty big. But, no, this was, this was a, a good-sized poster. Uh, the original, the concept that I, that was my ideas and my work, is owned by a guy here in Livermore, a longtime friend. He owns the original of that. It hangs in his house. Fantastic. That's great to know where your work is. Mm-hmm. Well, he's one of my closest friends. We've known each other for 49 years now. Fantastic. Yeah. That's Me, wonderful. His wife, she passed away about six or seven years ago, but we were all really good friends. We all belong to the same science fiction club here in the Bay Area. Now, you've always been involved in science fiction fandom. Is, is fantasy fandom and science fiction fandom one and the same, or were they two They worlds? were. When I first got into it, they were, you know, part and parcel of the same thing. How it is now, I don't know. Since I, I lost my eyesight to the point that I could actually do anything, uh, it's been almost 20 years now since I've had anything to do with, with fandom. I don't hear what's going on. I don't know who's involved in it now. I... I really couldn't say. It's, it's well, I, I don't pretend to know details except for Comic-Con has become such a giant phenomenon. Yeah. You know, we go to a lot of, uh, or have over the years, gone to a lot of conventions or shows involving game development or software development. Yeah. And now, like, the Game Developers Conference has tens of thousands of people at them. And, oh, yeah. And so... Comic-Con has become a place that is now a destination for launching movies yeah. or launching games. And we have had, you know, booths there specifically to advertise an upcoming game we were creating. Sure. In 1969, I believe it was, the I went to the second um, San Diego Comic-Con. It wasn't called the Golden State Comic-Con at the time, it was the, but it was the second time they had one. And uh, I was there as their fan artist guest of honor. Wow. How many people were there at that one? It was like a small science fiction convention. Uh, pretty much run the same way. They had program items. Not the big, you know, hall-filling things where you've got all of your casts and everything of TV shows. Because there weren't any TV shows at that time. <laughs> you said Star Trek. But uh, I met... Uh, oh... Bern Hogarth, one of my f uh, heroes. It just uh, astonished me that he was still alive. He had done the Tarzan comic strip that I saw in the newspapers when I was a child. Really? And he was, I guess, probably in his 70s. 
But we sat and talked for quite some time. Just a really nice guy. I saw Stan Lee. He was pointed out to me. I didn't meet any of those people, but uh, there were an awful lot of them there. He He's, still goes, I think. I, yeah, I've heard that he does. Uh, wow, that's amazing. That's, I, you know, I think the way that I first started working with you, Fred and I started working with you, was through a mutual friend, <coughs> John Freeman. Yeah. How did you come to meet John? He was a science fiction fan and was a good friend of the, uh, the Trimbles and was over to their house and I was introduced and we, we just became good friends. He and, uh, and his wife at the time, uh, we did a lot of things together, went to movies and, and things of that sort. And after they split up, he moved up here to the Bay Area. And I still heard from him occasionally, been to his house a couple of times, but it's been quite a number of years. Uh, yeah, it's, it's been a, a few industries. Um, so I met, so John Freeman and uh, his wife, uh, later wife, Ann Westfall, mm -hmm. and I worked on uh, two or three of Electronic Arts' <coughs> first games. Excuse me. So, so we worked, worked on, together, to create two or three of Electronic Arts' first yeah. games, Archon and Murder on the Zendernip, and uh, then a sequel, Archon 2. Even before that, though, John had co-founded one of the first computer game companies, which was initially called Automated Simulations, mm -hmm. and later became Epics. And that was the first place I worked on computer games, and I saw your artwork on several of the games that I loved. One was Crush, Crumble, and Chomp, oh, yes. <laughs> which was a build-your-own-monster-and-go-stomp-around-and-destroy-cities, yes. something everyone should do. And, um, and then you had also done some other classic, um, I don't want to say pulp or retro, but very classic science fiction images for uh, a game called Rescue at Rigel. And that image stuck in my head, and I think that, as we sit here talking about it, it becomes clear to me that that was one of the <coughs> me again. inspirations uh, for what I wanted us to do together in Star Control, that that mm -hmm. embracing of what science fiction, how it had been presented. Um, mm -hmm. Science fiction be is, is many different things, but I didn't necessarily find some of the darker or more purely digital versions of science fiction very inspiring. Yeah. So well, that painting was done deliberately to, to look like a, a pulp cover. I think John probably still owns the original. Uh, when, when I worked for him, he retained all rights. That included uh, buying the, the original art. So uh, what he did with them after he got them, I have no idea. My guess is he's still got them. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> uh, and, um, yeah, and so we worked together not only on, on Star Control 2, the Urquan Masters, uh, but we also worked together uh, on a, a game called The Horde, later for Crystal Dynamics. Mm -hmm. I have some artwork of yours in my living room. I think um, Roscoe the Dumb Dragon, I believe. <laughs> There's this very, in the game... You actually never see him in the game, but you can summon a dumb dragon to help you, and he just sort of randomly scorches an area of the game, <laughs> which hopefully is something you wanted scorched, but you're never quite sure what Roscoe's going to burn, and I just love that. It's a small painting, maybe six inches. I square. don't even remember it. <laughs> I never played the games. I never never got into that side of it at all. I would do the art, I'd do what they told me to do, but I, I never played them.
have you, so do you enjoy, or when your eyesight allowed you to, did you more enjoy reading books or reading graphic novels, or what was the medium? I never got into graphic novels. I kind of wish I had, because I've recently discovered them, but I have to work with a tiny little magnifying glass to even see what's on the page. So reading one of them is, is impossible, but I'm really impressed with the kind of work that they do. I don't know if you're familiar with ElfQuest. Yeah, I love uh, Wendy Peeney. Mm -hmm. I met her when she was 17 years old. She was uh, Wendy Fletcher at the time. I own, oh, six or seven of her, her early works, beautiful things. I just bowled over by, by her ability and talent in that kid. Mm -hmm. I, I don't mean to, to put down what she's done with her life, but uh, she, she could have turned out things that, that would have made what she did for ElfQuest look like scribbles. She was that good. She was that good. She's done what she wanted to do, and I, I bless her for that. <laughs> but uh, she and her husband, I uh, can't even remember his name now, uh, but they, they stopped in here a couple of years ago. Really? Yeah, we, we sat and talked for quite some time. I've got some of her, her earliest stuff back when she was still Wendy Fletcher. <laughs> you know, the you saw the transition from physical media to purely digital. Mm -hmm. Did that change the culture of artists who were working together? I suspect it has, but I've been so far out of it for so long now that the the digital side of it I never got into. I'm impressed beyond expression at the, the CGI stuff that's done in movies nowadays. It just blows me away. Mm -hmm. But uh, I've never never gotten involved in any, any part of it. This no way I could. I remember once trying with John, or maybe it was John trying, to get you to do work in deluxe paint on the Amiga, I think, or maybe on an old PC. Do you recall? It was a I, very early painting program. Vaguely, vaguely I remember something like that. I, I didn't until you mentioned it. And I, I don't remember what I remember and what I might have imagined. I just don't recall. I felt like we had handed you a stick with three colors and said, <laughs> draw something beautiful, because it just was so... Uh, it, it, alien. It, alien, and I, I, it's sort of like handing a mosaic pattern to someone and saying, here, work with these tiles and, and do what you just did with mm -hmm. pen and ink, because the pixels were so big and the colors were so limited. Yeah. Um, and now, of course, it it's you can't even see the pixels and there mm -hmm. you can have any color you want yeah um so let's see um i let's i'm gonna just let this keep rolling and, sure. and look look through some of these and this is great thank you by the way the conversation i love oh, that's pretty wow yeah you should have a book made of these i would prefer if you had it made before you were gone but oh, yeah that one was for um, not a computer game, but one of these books where you you work your way up to a point and then make a decision at the end of the chapter, and it tells mm -hmm. you where to go for the next... Choose your own adventure? Yes. Yeah. I've done a number of those. Love those faces. That's right. That was for a much 
short-lived magazine called Adventures in, in Sword and Sorcery. I the first I had a couple of color book covers from yours from the 60s and maybe the early 70s and I thought Sword and Sorcery was one of them but I remember a dragon blasting some knight and the fire is sort of splaying out from the shield and I remember drawing that over and over trying to see how you had done that <laughs> and I of course not really being an artist it never succeeded. Well it was done with ballpoint pen and watercolor. <laughs> that was the problem. I was trying to do it with acrylic. Oh that's very cool. Oh no that was uh for a Dungeons and Dragons piece called, uh, uh, I think it was Night of the Living Dead. Doesn't it say down at the bottom? Mm-hmm. Spelled with a K. Yeah. Inside the head of worm. So each of these images that has me look at it uh, has the name of the book that it's written on. And this one actually has a note, it looks like, to the publisher about how to display it about how it should be reduced and it's a double double page oh wow look at that That's... oh yeah that one was for i can't remember the name of the magazine now but, uh, oh i see it was a double page spread wow that's beautiful yeah it was one of my favorites i really liked that one. now these are all black and whites we're looking at here yes i think there's some color ones i'd love to look at too yeah i've got a few ring of the nibelin <laughs> oh, the fat opera singers. <laughs> I think the tape on this has, has yeah, it's in its last. It's funny how adhesives go away. We, you know, made a, our last game was called Skylanders, and we sold toys, um, hundreds of millions of them, uh, and they were in blister packs that sat on cardboard, and people collected them mm -hmm. as collectors are apt to do. But after a certain number of years, the, the glue just evaporated. And so there became this almost after a kind of a online knowledge base about what glue to use and how exactly to put the blisters back on mm -hmm. so that your collection wouldn't just fall apart. I guess these are all upside down. And here's another one that must have been too. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that one you... worked out to that side. Oh, oh, I see. Okay, so... That was for Marion Zimmer Bradley's fantasy magazine. Now you you had a connection with Marion Zimmer Bradley for quite a long time. Oh you? yeah, she uh, we met at a convention, and uh, I guess she was more impressed with with what I did than I had realized, because uh, she talked to people as if we were really close friends, and I barely knew her. I liked her, and then she called me. And ask if I would do the the cover first first issue cover of her magazine, and of course I jumped at the chance, and uh, I did I guess about a third of the covers from then on until the magazine it died when she died. Wow. Well, she of course wrote the Dark Over series mm -hmm. and tons of wonderful science fiction yeah. that I read when I was young and was a big influence. Oh yeah, I, I'd love to set this one to the side. Partially. Sure. Put up here with those. What is it? Oh yeah, that one was for Barsoom. Yeah, that's that's got that style that that we love. Immigrant. <laughs> so what's the story here? 
This guy looks like he really doesn't want to let go of that. Uh, he's hugging it for warmth. Oh, okay. I don't it. remember the whole story, but I, I do remember that, that he was out there in the bitter cold, wrapped around this machine. Hmm. I think the machine is sentient. I'm not sure. It's been a long, long time. This looks like not far away from where... Well, stuff like that in Utah exists, I presume. Oh, yes. Yeah. I was just down in Arizona with my dad getting a new hip. Not not me, but him. And so I got to see a lot of the beautiful Arizona rocks. Mm-hmm. And Monument Valley. And the, oh, wow. Look at that. That's great. That's also from uh, Barson. Do you recall what kind of creature that was? Let's see if I... Maybe you, you remember your Edgar Rice Burroughs, right? I don't remember the name of it, no. White That's a cool creature. Burroughs pretty, described his creatures pretty well. I didn't have to use an awful lot of imagination on them. Wow, that's beautiful, too. Oh, yeah, that's the rocket ship. Well, not rocket ship, is there? Flyers. Transportation flyers. I did the. Were these for, for Dick Lupoff? Uh, he wrote this book, Barsoom, about uh, Burroughs and his Martian stories. And it had been published before, and he was you know, bringing it out again and wanted me to illustrate it. And I, oh God, I worked hard on that. I, I turned out a cover. I'll show you that later. Where it's, I think you've already seen it. You, you commented on what like little mosaic stuff around it. <coughs> and I gave specific instructions on how that was to be put on the cover. And the publisher ignored mm. everything I'd said. Instead of enlarging it and you know I had crop marks you know cut off this part and everything I, I put a little more on than he's going to show there so it you know you you don't end up with white edges and he published the whole thing and had to reduce it way down in order to get it on the cover and it didn't it didn't suit the composition at all and instead of doing it uh, you know in, in standard uh, you know, printing techniques, he, he computer printed it. Huh. And uh, the contrast on it turned everything that was dark, turned it black. And it, I, I was just horrified. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> it was embarrassing because Dick, who has been a really good friend for quite a number of years, he asked if I would do an interview. He was... Uh, doing a radio show or something, I'm not sure. And he asked me if I'd ever had any major disappointments. Hmm. And this book that he had written had just come out, you know, so, so bad. And I I told him the truth. And we've never spoken since then. Hmm. I don't even know if he's still alive. Yeah. uh, I haven't seen any of his work in a long time. Certainly, growing up in Berkeley, he was well-known. Well, he was a good bit older than I am, so he'd either be in his late 80s or early 90s if he's still alive. I just was really sad that our our friendship ended on that note. Sorry. Can you tell me a little bit about this piece? Because this looks like something we could use. It fits right into our 
this was for a game. I don't know if it was a computer game or whether it was a, a story-related game. Uh, I never saw the finished product. Okay. I did a whole lot of, uh, of work for it, various characters and scenes and stuff like that, a lot of work, but I don't know how it was ever used. It almost looks like Alien Logic. Um, yeah, it kind of does. Almost. We have a friend who in Berkeley, uh, a guy named Andrew Leaker, who created a world that had creatures somewhat like this. But mm-hmm. um, but that's great. Does it have a copyright? It does have a 1993 name? with your name on it. Oh so. well, I I guess the the black and white piece is is my property. We can do with it as <laughs> we please. River of air, ocean of sky. What was this for? I guess amazing stories. Yeah. Oh, it was just a story that uh, it dealt with a sort of a science fictional uh, version of Icarus, mm-hmm. and uh, instead of with the the flappable wings, he's he's on a, a sort of a kite type thing, and I. I just tried to, to do it the way it was described. I love this illustration has a great example of using your your stipple technique to achieve what looks like a level of detail that's hard no, to imagine. This is not stipple. It's, oh, this, it's, this is what is called, or was called, coquille board. C-O-Q-U-I-L-L. And it was a, a textured board specifically made to give the impression of, of a halftone mm-hmm. back in the days when it was so expensive to do halftones. And I loved the, the feel of it. I, I used it in almost all of my black and white work. And now it's totally unavailable. Wow, it's beautiful. But I, I love the... You work with a, a black grease pencil and, and it just touches the tops of the bumps of uh-huh. this textured paper and it gives that... Ah, it's gorgeous. That beautiful look to it. Yeah, when I had uh, that your work scanned lately, mm-hmm. and then and then put into uh, frames, the scan the people who were scanning it were just staggered at the level of detail, mm-hmm. and you know because they were being asked to go in and scan it, mm-hmm. and uh, they just loved it. Well, that big one you were talking about with the the obelisk in the on the lunar type landscape. Mm-hmm. And the paper that I used for that was canvas textured uh, paper that is made specifically for oil painting because I couldn't get the coquille board anymore. But uh, I I made that one as large as I did because the lumps were bigger. (laughs) (laughs) That's another great picture. Uh, piece. I don't remember the story that went with that. Too much loose strife. Oh, by Fred Paul. Wow. Great writer. Huh. This is someone using a flamethrower, and there's a bunch of tiny little creatures running around behind it. He's trying to get rid of Olin. (laughs) That's maybe a trick. Now, Fred Paul, I was just showing my daughter my favorite old Star Trek episodes, because she Mm -hmm. didn't watch... Unlike my son, she hasn't watched much Star Trek, and we watched Amok Time, and I think that... Was that Fred? Oh, that was Ted Sturgeon. Ted Sturgeon. Oh. And then we got City on the Edge of Forever, which is debatably by Harlan Ellison. Yeah. <laughs> I think he would debate it. Harlan died fairly recently. Yeah, yeah he did. 
That's cool. That one is another half and half piece. Jeff Titers. Wow. Yeah. I actually drew airplanes. Realistic, uh -huh. modern airplanes. <laughs> but I had fun with that one. I love this alien or high technology. Mm -hmm. I was recently went to um, Hoover Dam and I just had a blast looking at the turbines and the old oh, giant yeah. technology. It's a beautiful place. The mosaics on the floor there they had a story about the Mexican family who had done those mosaics mm -hmm. and they were beautiful. Oh, there's something from Star Control I recognize. That's great. That's the Mark II. This one, I actually think. I'm pretty sure that I know the guy whose game this is. I think we would probably he would probably not be okay with us using it because his his computer games. Um, I'll ask him. Sure. And if it turns out that's not the case, then I'll probably come back. I've got a lot of stuff from that particular game. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I wonder if he. Oops. Creatures. Jerun, yeah, that is, this is from his game. That is oh. so funny. Uh, yeah, Sky Realms of Jerun was what it was called. And he, he was a big Star Control fan. It may be possible that, that we connected him with you. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, he did a game called Alien Logic that I think this appeared in. He's still making games. I haven't had any contact from him in a long, long time, but then, uh, I moved here to Livermore, and I didn't send out a change of address to most people because I just wasn't capable of doing the work anymore. Mm -hmm. So I suspect an awful lot of fans probably believe I'm dead. I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. And I, I suspect Star Control, all the Star Control fans in the world will know you're not because your name is part of the lawsuit we're involved in. Would you want to give this to, sure. to Andrew? Okay. That's a beautiful piece. That's. Oh no, that was uh, an early thing for. I can't remember which magazine. It was either Amazing or uh, Asimov's. I think it's probably Amazing. Wow, and all these different creatures at the bottom. They're all different, and they're all great. Huh. One little human boy among them. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what that... Yeah, I want to read that story. Well, that was the point of the pictures, was trying to get people curious enough to read them. That also looks like alien logic. Which one is that? Yeah, I believe it is. I wow, have you have some quite a body of work here. Yeah. We've been totally. looking at pictures. And I've got hundreds of things that amazed me when I realized that I had done that much. Wow. When you get into the, the smaller stuff, I do so many little space fillers. I like this one. We've got pills. Oh yeah, that's one of my favorites. Also. Beautiful women and cars. Community. Brian Stable, also famous science fiction writer. One of the 
illustrations that you did in, in Star Control 2, the Urquhorn Masters, was of, of the Cyrene, the, the beautiful space warrior, and she's reclining. You did actually a number of illustrations of her. Uh, she's the blue hair. Yeah, blue. Blue skin. Yeah, black hair. Yeah. Uh, um, and I'm curious what... The, the early description was very simple from our, you know, sort of, you know, blue skin, space, beauty, who is a mm-hmm. warrior. How did you approach that? Do you recall the creative choices you made in, in bringing that character to life? I don't remember what she's wearing, so I don't don't have any idea how I decided on the costume. It was sort of a metal chest piece with a spiral uh, snake, mm-hmm. sort of, for the... Very Cleopatra type. Yes. Type. Yeah. So, I... I decided on the the positions that I wanted her in, and then looked through my files to find some beautiful girl who was <laughs> so somewhere close to that position. Oh, that's great too. Yeah, I liked that one. I was very pleased with that one. When I got a reputation with this one publisher of being the guy who puts clothes on dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> And I hadn't realized that I had done that that many times, but I really did, I feel, I guess. And that's not exactly close, it's more just a oh, headpiece. That's great. Well, he's saying he's got a chest piece, too. There's something, mm-hmm. something going on there. That's great. Try to set that one aside. So, any of these ones with a copyright indication, you think... It would be possible if we if we purchase it, we could use that image. I would hope so. I would hope the people would, because with the magazines, they bought first first printing rights, first time publication, and after that, I was supposed to be able to do whatever I pleased with them. Okay. And I haven't had anything to do with them recently. Oh yeah. I don't remember the story in that one. That's good. Hmm. That one, <laughs> there's a story behind it. Um, I got this book from Da. It was uh, The Metallic Muse. I can't remember the author's name. And I read the thing and I... I there's nothing in here that I can think of that, that would make an illustration. I thought, this is something they ought to have said to Kelly Freeze. Really? And then immediately I saw in my mind what Kelly might have done. And so that's what I painted, was the Kelly Freeze piece. But <laughs> I had to do two or three concepts um, to send to the publisher. He always wanted three things. And this was one of them. But it, uh, I had done a, a pencil, you know, a small colored pencil thing, but I liked the concept. So I redid this just for my own interest. It's never been published, never been shown. It's oh, just cool. one that I like. But the, this is the, uh, the metallic muse, the way it turned out. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm familiar with that image. <laughs> That's a fantastic It's been published painting. four times. That's great. And I told Kelly about it one time, and he, he looked a little embarrassed. <laughs> he says, well, I'm kind of flattered, I guess. <laughs> but it was what I had imagined he might have painted for that. I certainly had a lot of his covers. Um, 
when I was, I think, 11 or 12. I Mad con- Magazine. Really? You did a lot of those? Oh, for years. Oh, wow. I just knew them from Asimov's and uh, Analog mm-hmm. and, and those. Yeah. He, also, he also once advertised, did an advertisement, I think, for blinking plastic jewelry back in like 1973. And I was totally fascinated by that concept huh. of LED jewelry. Yeah, I never never saw that. And and never having gone to a rave, I still haven't ever had any of that. But Kelly was one of the nicest guys I ever met. He just really? spectacularly modest. And this is the thing that impressed me, that the most talented people I have met have been the most modest about their works. And you find some of them that are just beginning, you know, who are so full of themselves, it's almost embarrassing. And I think, oh, come back and see me in 30 or 40 years and then tell me how great you are. <laughs> J. J. Michael Straczynski. That name is very familiar. I don't remember the story. I feel like that's someone who got in... That was one that I thought they should have sent that to Virgil Finlay. Mm. And then I, I did a Virgil Finlay. <laughs> <laughs> that's beautiful. It looks like you're style to me. Well, I see what you're saying about Virgil. It's but. Virgil Finlay's, you know, dots and, and and bubbles. He did that so often. Hmm. There's one of the publishers of Amazing or Weird Tales. I can't remember which one it was. Who said uh, I, I think he was complimenting me. I'm not sure. But he says, you are the greatest pastichist in the business. Hmm. What, how, what do you mean by he that? He meant that I could imitate anybody else's style. Hmm. And I found that that was not quite true. I tried doing a Kelly freeze once and uh, found that he was inimitable. He, you just, he's, he's who he is, and you can't do what he does. Wow, that's a great, great image. Oh, I love just the flow of the, sh- the way that the creature is curving. That's beautiful. Thank you. Well, all of them in this box, this particular box, are the ones that I consider my best work. Hmm. That one, nobody has ever commented on what I hoped would be a, a very noticeable point. They all have the same eyes. Mm-hmm. Are they the same individual reincarnated? Yeah. Or? Yeah. That's, that's cool. It was the only way I could think of to, to make it put a point uh, the, across the point that they were all the same person, was to give them all the hmm. same eyes. But nobody's ever noticed that. Well, I wish I could say I would have noticed it. But I think now that you say it, it's impossible not to see it. Huh. The idea of um, sort of computerized afterlife has mm-hmm. certainly become this image has yeah. a representation of that. And there's a TV show from England called Black Mirror now that uh, by a guy named Charlie Booker, and uh, he's touched on that idea of what what is a memory? What are the memories of someone who's who's passed away? when they're preserved electronically and mm-hmm. displayed on something like that, or that you can go in and experience it. Yeah, that's our... Sure let's see, I can't remember which... I think it was this direction. Yeah. <laughs> it's for weird tales. That's great. 
And is this this is um, canvas board? Is that the... co- well? Let's see. Is this? Yeah, this is the the canvas board, <laughs> or a really rougher version of the coquille. It came with several different textures. This may have been the rougher. How are we doing for time, Fred? Because I'm on a. Have some place you've got to be. Well, I have I have a mom with Alzheimer's, oh. and I need to. Uh, I need to be there between five thirty and six this evening in Berkeley, oh. so we've got we've got plenty of time. But um, okay. my daughter is in town for a short period of time, and I kind of want to connect them while sure. I can. Uh, otherwise, I would love to just keep hanging out here because I love looking at all of this. Hmm. Edwina Mayer, <laughs> a teddy bear in the background sticking out its tongue is really great. <laughs> I love that. I think I, I saw a uh, Christmas, maybe, card you put out with uh, a teddy bear, Winnie the Pooh-like character. Mm-hmm. I love that. Um, yeah, I've done a lot of uh, Christmas cards over the years. There was one guy up in Oregon that, uh, I think, 35 years I did their, their family's Christmas Really? Cards. Always wow. involved a dragon. Huh. This is a gorgeous piece. Holy moly. Oh, that one... Uh, it was, there was some poetry, and they wanted a picture on each side of the two, you know, on, on one page and the other page, and uh, I tried to get images from the poem, and in this one there was a narwhal, mm-hmm. and I put a mermaid with him, of course, and the other <laughs> one there was a unicorn with a, a princess, mm-hmm. done in pretty much the same style. That one sold... A number of years ago. That's a beautiful, beautiful kind of drawing. <sighs> that one was done for a fan publication, for a convention bulletin, I think it was, mm-hmm. uh, on two, you know, two facing pages with text in those spaces. Bad Ogre and Staunch Friend. That was <laughs> one of my own stories. Now, were these stories that you wrote? or Yeah, just... I wrote it myself. Oh, wow. It's a great ogre. 1997. Now, how long did you... Well, you said you no longer illustrate. How, how recent is that? About ten years. Mm-hmm. The last thing I did was one of those dragon Christmas cards, and it it was awful. And I told them I was very sorry, but it would be the last one I, I would be able to do. Hmm. I sure wish technology could catch up yeah. with that. Everybody has told me that that was a self-portrait. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it was not intentional if it is. I can see how people could think that. It wasn't always as ridiculous as I am now. <laughs> right, Violet's by Andre Norton. Andre Norton has a big influence yeah. on me in terms of her fiction. 
I think that White Violets is one of the last things she had published. She died right soon after that. That's right. From Marion's That's another half and half piece. That's nice. This goes on the other side. Very, very in love with Tanaflee's work for a while. Then I just sort of got out of touch with it. I don't know if it... I've seen her work published every now and then, but um, I remember John saying she was quite a striking figure at, from his perspective. Oh, I never met her, but I got a couple of complimentary letters from her for things <laughs> that I had done illustrating her stories. She appreciated that very much. She wrote something called The Silver Metal Lover and Drinking Sapphire Wine, which are two, two of my favorite stories. Of I don't think and I read either of those. The, uh, the Storm Lord is another one, probably all from 1973 or 74. Well, for the last, oh, God, I guess about 20 years of when I was illustrating, I never got a chance to read much of anything except what I was illustrating. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, wasn't the time. I collected a whole shelf full of books that I just never got around to. Do you never will? Are you able to listen to audiobooks? Oh, yeah. I got one just uh, a week or so ago called uh, uh, Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters. <laughs> and it's funny. I really enjoyed that one. Oh, that's great. This is oh, this one just has the title. It goes over here. The Wizards of Ashes and Rain. Mm -hmm. Excellent. I want to make sure we get a chance to look at your color pieces. Sure. Stephen Baxter. I am Stephen Baxter. If that's the same Stephen Baxter. It's science I fiction. I don't remember the name. Well, that's the kid watching the two gods. Oh, two gods? Squaring off, yeah. See how much smaller than them he is. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's usually trouble. Anytime you see gods... <laughs> Whoa, that's a great illustration. That one was so complex that I don't think it reads well at all. Uh, this is basically what's happening, but these are contributing things that are going on in other places, and I, I don't think it really worked. I, hmm. I worked hard on it, but I, I think it's just too busy. There was a... You know, sometimes when you're going through images fast, things that are this complicated are hard to read and sometimes no. your eyes skip over but if it's ever something that's like up on your wall in your room or I just remember as a kid there were some images that were this complicated that I spent a lot of time imagining what was happening oh. it provided enough detail that I could kind of lose myself in it hmm. well, that one was kind of fun people that could climb the walls yeah, when I was working at TSR on Dungeons and Dragons material, a lot of it was on powerful magical thieves and what mm -hmm. they could do, and that was the kind of thing they could do. Snorri. There's been a big resurgence in, in uh, Norse myth lately. Uh, what's his name? Famous, famous fantasy writer. I can't remember. Forget it. He wrote Sandman, um, and he wrote... The name sounds familiar. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I, anyway, he recently put out a Norse Myths, an interpretation of Norse Myths that mm -hmm. was gotten people interested in it again. 
That must have been, this one would have been challenging for me to think about how, how to do that. Well, I, the ones for that story turned out rather stylized, much more so than I had really intended. But uh, I was trying to give the impression that, that he was getting so much information <laughs> all at once that it was just uh, hard for him to, to encompass it. I'm going to take a, a break for sure. from looking at these, and maybe I've got some questions to see if I've covered some of them in our conversation. Yeah. And if there's anything that you either want to talk about or specifically don't, it's totally fine by me. Sure. Um, so let's see. Some of these questions you've answered. Um, but uh, you've mentioned a number of science fiction artists who you feel like have, have inspired specific pieces, but which artists would you say overall have been most influential or inspiring to you? Um, you mean among science fiction artists? Uh, could be science fiction or classical, really any. Okay, it would probably be Arthur Rackham and uh, Maxfield Parrish. Mm. I certainly know Parrish. What, what, tell me a little bit about Rackham. Rackham is very stylized. He had... Uh, particular line to his work. He did uh, um, oh, I can't think offhand of um, the names just hmm. don't come to my mind, the, the things that he's illustrated. But uh, it was around the turn of the last century. Mm -hmm. was a, a book illustrator. And I liked the, the look of, of what he did, the way it it moved, the, the lines of it. And I used to have kind of fun drawing something with the uh, the Rackham style of of how he proportioned things and then rendering it in the Maxfield Parish <laughs> style with his kind of coloring and rich you know the richness of, of, of how he did it. I, I tried to combine those two a number of times and uh, ended up looking like not much like either one of them. But <laughs> well, hopefully you, like, you liked the pieces. Yeah, I, I had fun with them. I'm trying to think of anything that I've got that would demonstrate that. I can't think offhand. Well, you have a lot of wonderful pieces in the room. Are there any in particular that are from artists that you're fond of, or...? Tim Kirk. Oh. He was a good friend. I met him the very first day I was in Los Angeles, and it was just instant friendship. Uh, I watched him. He was only, I guess, 20... Yeah, 20 years old when I met him. I turned uh, 21 uh, a couple of months later, and he turned... No, I turned 31 a couple of months later. Or I had just turned 31. But anyway, he turned 21. So we were just t 10 years apart. Mm -hmm. But uh, just amazed at the the talent in that boy. He just, God, he could do anything. And uh, this particular one was done specifically for me. I had done a portrait of him surrounded by a lot of the characters from his drawings called The Dreams and the Dreamer. And uh, it was used as, as a frontispiece in a book of his published work. And uh, he, he says, what can I give you in return for this? 
and I asked him if he remembered the Temple of the Dawn from the Thief of Baghdad. Mm -hmm. And he says, well, yeah, sort of. I says, well, now don't, don't go back to the movie. Do it from your memory. Do me a painting of the Temple of the Dawn. And that's what he came up with. Uh, in, in the movie, it's brightly lit. I don't know why they called it the Temple of the Dawn, because it's obviously midday in the film. Mm -hmm. But he, he did it right. And he says, I hope you won't object to the fact that I included the torchlight procession from, uh, oh, what was the other movie? Um, Lost Horizon. Hmm. He says, I, I, I love that movie. And he says, I had all that space there, so I put in the <laughs> funeral procession there. <laughs> Let's see. We've talked... I guess that's this is more specifically relating to to Star Control too. Um, how would you describe the creative process, both how it how it started and then how you took over um, and used your imagination? How well, a lot of the pieces in it you sent me uh, work that someone else had already done the designing of the characters, so I just elaborated on that to put it into the uh, the, the full-color scene. Uh, there's the one with the, the guy that is kind of rhinoceros-looking, and uh, I can't remember which others, but there were several of them that, that were not my concepts at all. I I just tried to, to do what had been established without, you know, putting a, more into it, but not not infringing on on what had already been established. For and for the ones that I'm trying to remember which ones some sometimes I provided sketches and I think sometimes they were from the previous game, but but boy it's hard you did such beautiful work. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the larger pieces I feel like I would describe just a scene on like it's a, it's an alien world with a giant spaceship <laughs> and I would get back this marvelous, you know, first facts and then a painting well you had told me that the plan that you had was that the uh, the captain it was not supposed to be definite in the game whether this was male or female so that boys or girls could play it and it would be equally accessible to either one of them and so everything that I did all that had the captain in it up until the very final piece where he's he's talking to the children uh, I had had I didn't want to make it look effeminate but I also wanted to make you make it look like it could be a woman mm -hmm. and the the one scene where looking out over the valley and there's the, the two figures standing there under the tree mm -hmm. uh, he's got his back to you so you can't really tell and I, I was deliberately trying to to be I don't know what you could transgender, not exactly. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> uh, and then I I saw the, the the cover painting for the box, and I realized, okay, it's it's pretty well established. He is male, so for that final picture, I I abandoned any any pretext. <laughs> the when we so we had um, responsibility over everything inside the game. <laughs> Um, the publisher got to decide the cover, and mm -hmm. although we went back and forth with them on its contents, it was ultimately, a cover. it is. It's not. We did want 
the gender to be non-specific so mm-hmm. that people could project themselves into sure. that role. And I think people still did. But ultimately, at the end, we did just kind of say, well, if we want to <laughs> we want to show this person when they're old, then then, you know, we have to get up a little bit closer so no. you can recognize them. And that that worked out great. I don't well, I thought the cover that you got on the box was, was a beautiful piece. I wish I had done it. I wish I were capable of doing it. It was in a style it was I've never been able to do. I don't I probably told you the story before, but the first game, uh Star Control Two obviously was a sequel to Star Control. Mm-hmm. And the initial cover that that was created was just this alien hand with a sort of a high tech wristband and it was, I can't remember if it was clutching a planet or if it looks like it could be clutching a planet, but it, um, it was a nice illustration for the box for the computer game. Mm-hmm. And then we did a version for the Sega Genesis, which was a console, you know, like a video game console, not a general purpose computer. Yeah. And they wanted to do a new illustration. And they said, well, we're going to redo the illustration. What do you want? And I said, ah. Oh, I like the original illustration, but, you know, I guess you could make the rendering a little tighter. Make it, you know, uh, just have someone take a little more care because it's sort of vague in some spots. <laughs> and they, they brought it back later and said, so this is what Boris Vallejo did with it. He he followed your instructions completely. <laughs> and I went, Boris Vallejo was the artist you had doing that? And I just told him to do it tighter? And, and I, <laughs> he was the one that did that final cover. He did. He did. Um, you you probably I, haven't seen it, but it's if you saw it, you would go, "Oh yeah, that's Boris Vallejo's oh, version of that other drawing." But I know his person. work. I, I he, agree. He's about as tight as they get. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not necessarily. I'm a, a of those the Frank Frazetta world is much more where I would want to live. But well, he he's he started out as the the cheaper version of Frank Frazetta. Of course, Frank Frazetta started out as the cheaper version of uh, J. Allen St. John. Oh, is that right? Oh, yeah. Well, I guess we all we all start somewhere. Mm-hmm. So, let's see. One of the important experiences I had with you was you were the first artist I worked with, or really the first creative partner I worked with, who was um, out, or who was openly gay. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to push that in any uncomfortable way, or even talk about it if you're not comfortable. But is it something that you feel like you have something to say about, or that you would like to talk about? Well, I, in fandom, I have been pretty much open, because Jim and I were together for 36 years. Mm -hmm. We went to conventions together. Everybody knew we were a couple, so there was little point in trying to hide it. Uh, The places where we lived, we were not that, not, not quite that obvious. I presume some of the people around us had guessed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this complex that I'm living in now, there is one person I told that I was gay because she was being just a little sweeter than <laughs> than I was comfortable with. And uh, another one who came up to me uh, while I was out feeding stray cats, which I do every night, and uh, she says, George, I'm gay. And I says, uh, so am I. She said, I kind of thought you were. And so we've talked about it quite a bit. But they're the only people here that, so far as I know, know it for sure. They may have suspected, but nobody said anything. Do you feel like um, it informed the, some of the art you did, or that you can feel that aspect of you is present in your artwork? 
I presume it probably is. As, or you must have noticed in the things that you've been going through, there's one hell of a lot more pictures of men than there are of women. <laughs> and the, the men quite often are not fully clothed. But uh, I've never pushed it where it wasn't, uh, wasn't acceptable in the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so many of the, the old things in the, the pulps, you know, where there's the beautiful girl in the brass bra. That was just standard. <laughs> and you read the story and you think, well, okay, maybe she could have possibly have been wearing something like that, but there's no indication in the story that that's what she was wearing. And she's not all of that major a character anyway. But it was just part and parcel of it. There had to be the beautiful girl. And uh, fortunately, uh, I got into it just about the time when people were saying, now, now don't push the, the girl too hard. We don't want that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I had a couple of illustrations that I did that uh, were sent back. They said, no, it, uh, it's a little too sexist. The girl was like this, and they said, does she... You've got her nude. I said, yes, but she's covered up. He said, but she's nude. You can't do that. <laughs> and so I I avoided that when I, when possible. Mm-hmm. Um, Certainly the siren that you illustrated, the, the female captain, mm-hmm. was absolutely beautiful and so well-dressed. I mean, I think For the in, in retrospect, she mm-hmm. was certainly didn't have an excess of clothing, but what with environmental controls inside spaceships. Maybe that's not that important, but still, <laughs> she's she's certainly beautiful. Well, um, I hope so. Yeah. I, one of the, well, I presume you've seen that book of mine that was published about 40-some years ago. Uh, uh, what on earth was the title of it now? It was a book of my early work. Mm-hmm. That's strange that I can't remember the name of it. But uh, one of the fans who wrote a review of the the book. He says, George Barr paints unbelievably beautiful women. And I thought that was rather nice. But it was funny because years later there was a, a woman that that started working with Marion, doing some of the uh, layout and stuff. Mm-hmm. And the issue just previous to her coming into it had uh, involved a story where there's this this girl who is described as being very plain, no figure at all. She's out hunting for frogs. She's catching frogs. And uh, I can't remember the story exactly, but uh, there is one instance where this young boy kisses one of the frogs. And so the main illustration is of this this boy holding this frog out here, you know, like he's going to kiss it. George Suthers absolutely loved that. He bought the original. <laughs> he thought that he says he could, you know, imagining that kissing the frog and suddenly there'd be this handsome prince that this little boy, boy was kissing. <laughs> but the uh, opposite page has the, the tall, slim, kind of skinny, scraggly-looking girl out catching frogs. There's a frog jumping across the thing. And this uh, this woman decided on the basis of that... She hadn't read the story. She just looked at the pictures. That George Barr cannot draw a pretty girl. He doesn't know anything about how how women should look. And so she was assigning me a cover. But she assigned the 
the illustrations that went along with the cover to another artist that she figured could draw the, the women as, as pretty as they, they As she to wanted be. them to be, yeah. Yeah, it was huh. the only time I've ever been accused of not being able to draw a pretty woman. Well, I think part of why I liked your illustrations were I always couldn't necessarily project myself into the ultra-muscular, hyper-testosterone um, badasses yeah. that you'd see on covers. Where your heroes had kind of a physique I could more project myself mm -hmm. into. And I well, I tried to make them real. I even did some completely nude male figures on, on occasion. And somebody commented that uh, these are extremely modest, in fact, in spite of the fact that they're nude. He says they're... <laughs> They're not hung like a horse. <laughs> I said, of course not. That's not the way men look. But uh, I, I've, I've always tried, if I was doing men or women, if the story called for it, to make them good looking. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just turned out that uh, I ended up drawing more men than women. That Maybe that was a matter of my choice in the subject matter. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I really honestly don't know. I never avoided drawing a picture of a woman because I I may not be physically attracted to them, but I still can recognize beauty when I see it. Yeah, you once described a costume that you made for a woman in a um, science fiction costume show, I think. Uh, I'm trying to remember that to, to, to get you started on it. It was someone who I believe was ill. Um, and oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I remember the one. Uh, the girl was going blind. Mm -hmm. And she was a very pretty girl. Beautiful, long, dark hair. But Vito Trimble and I decided that uh, we should do a costume for her, for this the upcoming convention, that would enable her to to see pictures of herself as long as she could see, and and see herself as beautiful as she really was. So we did a Queen of Atlantis mm. costume. Uh, I did the, the headdress and the, the cloak and the jewelry, and Bijo did the, the dress, the under sort of thing. And she just, she looked beautiful in it, absolutely beautiful. And it was what we wanted. That was a very, very nice thing to do for someone. Well, she was a good friend, and... Uh, I just, I wish I had gotten some photographs of, of the costume together. Uh, she asked me if, if she could keep the headdress, and I let her. Mm -hmm. It was a sort of semi-Egyptian that I had made of, you know, almost the Cleopatra type of wings coming down around the face. Mm -hmm. uh, I made it out of bits of cardboard that I'd covered with gold lame and then glued them all together and jewels and and then had it edged with peacock feathers. It was a wow. rather pretty. And it uh, also had strings of jewels which hung down under the chin, down, you know, instead of a necklace, it, it hung from the edges of the, the, the headdress. And uh, it was kind of disappointing in one thing. I took the name from, uh, I can't remember the name of the novel. It was made into a movie called The Queen of Atlantis. Then it was uh, remade, starring Maria Montez, as uh, Siren of Atlantis. Hmm. But the name of the queen was Antonia. Mm -hmm. And that's what we called her costume, was Antonia, Queen of Atlantis. And the person who was announcing it says, uh, 
Antonia Queen of Madison. <laughs> <laughs> that that hurt. It wasn't Antonia at all. 